Good morning, everyone. Uh, so our reading today is Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 to 15. Uh, as Cam said, it's on page 1683 uh, of the Black Bibles. Uh, it will also be on the screen beside me here. So Acts chapter 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thess uh, Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were more, of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him there as soon as possible. Well, good morning. Uh, as Cam introduced uh, me earlier, my name is Aaron. I'm not the regular preacher here at uh, Trinity Tonsley, uh, so if you are new or visiting, you are very welcome, um, but I encourage you to come back next week as well <laughs> for the great sermon series that uh, Cam usually leads us in, um, but I hope too and I pray too that uh, what uh, we can learn from the passage today will be of great encouragement to you. Uh, let me start by praying. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I ask that you please lead us by your spirit to have open hearts and minds that we may listen and learn and act upon your word. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Our passage today reminded me of these verses, which start the book by Charles Dickens called A Tale of Two Cities. He published it back in 1859, 
And it seems just as relevant to the passage that we're going to look at today as it does even to our own times. And so I'd like to thread that through the message today. For the passage today compares the responses of two cities to the gospel being preached in them by the Apostle Paul and his companions. The two cities, however, have very different responses to the same message. And Luke, the author of Acts, wants us to learn from this contrasting tale of two cities. Two weeks ago, uh, sorry, he wants us to learn, though, with certainty that the events of Jesus' ongoing ministry in the world bear fruit. That even though the response to the gospel may be unpredictable to us, it does and always will lead to salvation. Two weeks ago, Aaron Honeychurch uh, taught us of how God providentially led Paul to travel to Macedonia instead of to Asia. Despite the apostle not understanding at the time, he, we, he and we learnt how God fulfilled his plan to reach the people of Asia through an Asian businesswoman called Lydia. And last Sunday, Luke wisely helpfully taught us that the ministry of Jesus was spreading out in concentric circles from Jerusalem to Israel and now to Greece. Even though there was strong opposition, it was still spreading. Today, however, the passage looks less at the individuals that are being saved, like we looked at in previous weeks, and looks more at groups of people and how they respond. We have the contrasting groups in Thessalonica and Berea. Today we'll see the responses that echo the words of Dickens, examples of wisdom and foolishness, belief and incredulity, light and darkness. I have up uh, on the map, uh, which is a slide there, which shows us the geographical uh, layout of the setting of our two tales. And thanks to Luke, I was uh, prompted to put up a good map because I know it helps him. We start at the top in Philippi, where we were last week, and Paul and his companions pass through Amphipolis, Apollonia, to reach Thessalonica. Uh, it's likely that they were overnight stops due to the travel times by foot, but they pass straight through. We're not, uh, we don't have any recording of teachings there, and they base themselves in Thessalonica first. So in the chapter 17 of Acts, Luke is giving us a brief but focused retelling of the two contrasting experiences in these cities. The events in Thessalonica, a city, uh, sorry, a city that we're familiar with from other biblical books, and the events in Berea, a lesser-known city to us today. We'll start, as Luke does, in Thessalonica. We learn from the text that this was the biggest city in the region, but historians also tell us that it was a Roman free city. This was a self-governing city with a level of freedom and authority that was greater or more privileged than cities uh, in the area. As it was the most populous city in Macedonia, it makes a lot of sense for Paul and his companions to have based themselves here rather than 
stopping in those uh, two previous towns, they went straight for the hub, straight to the, the center where they could have the most impact. We as a church network in Trinity make similar strategic decisions as when we think about how to plant churches as well. Uh, we looked at Tonsley and it had similar attractions to it like Thessalonica, uh, sorry, Thessalonica would have. Uh, we're close to universities, a population centre. There's a hospital where people come in from the region. Uh, we have available space and we're close to public transport. All of these things make strategic sense. But as you'll see, strategy alone doesn't necessarily lead to immediate success. It takes a little bit more than our planning to have an impact in the community. Once in Thessalonica, Paul followed his familiar pattern of preaching the good news of Jesus to the Jews in the synagogue first. Luke describes Paul as staying in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, where he preached to Jews and obviously Gentiles alike. We're not told the full sermon that Paul preached. Luke has focused more on describing the response rather than the message itself. But it's likely Paul would have preached a message similar to that that Luke recorded earlier in Acts when Paul was preaching in Antioch. We can read that whole sermon recorded for us in chapter 13. And what, Luke do, uh, sorry, what Paul does in that recorded message is Paul talks through the Scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He starts in the book of Genesis, works through Exodus, then Judges and Kings, even through Psalms and maybe our favourite book, Habakkuk. All of these books, from the beginning to the end, Paul threads the story of Jesus through all building up to the climax by saying, what God promised our ancestors, he fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. In Thessalonica, whilst I said we don't know what he preached, it seems that he preached along very similar themes as what he preached in Antioch. We know, that, uh, he we know this because Luke records, Paul reasons with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, are the words of Paul. It's worth us remembering, I think, that the Old Testament is only called old because it was written first, not because it's somehow redundant. The whole Bible points us to Jesus. It's extraordinary and encouraging to see and learn how hundreds of years of written records scribed by multiple authors all point to the same person, that is Jesus. In response to this message that Paul preached, we are told that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. If you're following along in the leaflet and you like notes, that's the first point of comparison in the table between the two cities that some Jews believed. 
whilst it seems like it was a good result, other Jews became jealous. It seems that they find something in Paul's message offensive or threatening. It's hard to understand, I feel, from my modern perspective, why this message would make some Jews feel jealous. We just celebrated communion where we remember that Jesus died for us and rose again and he is our king. But their response is quite different to what we celebrate today. Jealousy is not a word that I would like to be described with. When I looked up the Oxford Dictionary meaning of jealous, the first example was feeling or showing an envious resentment of someone or their achievements, possessions or perceived advantages. In light of this interpretation, perhaps the Jews were envious of Paul and Silas, that they were attracting some people out of the synagogue to follow what they presumed was a new faith. Another alternative understanding of the word from the Oxford Dictionary is that jealousy can mean fiercely protective of one's rights or possessions. The example given in the same dictionary is the men were proud of their achievements and jealous of their independence. Like the owners of the slave girl last week, and actually in other instances recorded in Acts, the loss of income, power and prestige could be what was stirring up the emotions in these Jews. For a Messiah that is willing to suffer and die is not a Messiah that is going to fulfill people's selfish ambitions for such things as income, power and prestige. Perhaps as residents of a free Roman city, they feared the loss of freedom and wealth and this was the reason for them becoming jealous. Either way, Jealousy is a strong emotion in people. It can be very destructive when springing from a negative place in our hearts. And I think that it is the case that it is coming from a negative heart. We're not to read this jealousy in the same way as when God describes himself as jealous. Or when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Why? Because the response of God's jealousy is love. But the response from the jealous Jews is destructive, dishonest and ill-tempered. For we read, they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot. This opposition was not based upon love. It was not based upon a scriptural understanding of how the Messiah is described. The actions are negative, And so therefore, the source of their emotion is negative. In fact, the jealous Jews didn't seem to care about scripture at all because they didn't even try to form a counter-argument. They just went full rage mode and started a riot. Eventually, searching for the source of their anger and not finding Paul and Silas, 
they appeal to the city officials and make false claims, which reignites the anger of the crowd. Willfully at worst, or from ignorance at best, they claimed that Paul was teaching that Jesus was a king in opposition to Caesar. All Jews were then and still are waiting for the Messiah to come. It's a core principle of the Jewish faith. But part of this belief is that the Messiah will be an earthly king. Whilst this is not what Paul was teaching, it is actually what the Jews were waiting for. It's ironic then and lacks integrity when they make this claim against Paul to stir up a crowd. It was an expedient argument, but a very powerful argument to make. For, for Thessalonica's free city status was only at Rome's pleasure. If the city was accused of setting up its own king, then Rome would come crashing down upon them and militarily stop this rebellion. Their special freedom that they have that others don't would be lost. This accusation, though, also carried the real threat of death for Paul and his companions particularly if Rome found them guilty of what would be treason. But this is not the type of king that Paul taught, nor how the rest of Scripture teaches who the Messiah will be. Jesus says of himself, my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, Jesus is the king, but not a king that establishes establishes his rule over a city like Thessalonica or even a mere empire. He is the king over the whole universe, not in opposition to the Roman Caesar, but above and over all rulers and powers of this world. In my preparation for the sermon today, I read uh, um, John Stott's work on uh, the book of Acts, and I'd like to quote from him today because I found him so helpful. And so I have a slide um, with the quote that I want to read. And he writes, Ambiguity of Christian teaching in this area remains. On the one hand, as Christian people, we are called to be conscientious and law-abiding citizens, not revolutionaries. On the other hand, the kingship of Jesus has unavoidable political implications since, as his loyal subjects, we must refuse to give to any other ruler or ideology the supreme homage and total obedience which are due to him alone. The ambiguity that Stott here describes and the jealousy that these Jews were experiencing combined into a weapon that silenced Paul. However foolish or incredulous the accusation, it was effective. The city officials acted very swiftly to stop the riot and imposed a financial guarantee upon Jason 
with whom Paul and Silas were apparently staying. And this guarantee was that Paul would leave and never return. In effect, he was deported and labelled as a persona non grata, never to be allowed to come back. And possibly, this is exactly what Paul was recalling when he later writes to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 18. And he writes there, For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. It seems that this uh, ruling had a lasting impact. From a worldly point of view, we can look at that and think it is a dark end to events in the city where the opposition to the gospel was so great that it had very real consequences on Paul and his team in their effectiveness in ministry. These Thessalonian Jews misinterpreted the message and were blind to the truth as revealed in Scripture. Their attitude was in rebellion to the Scriptures and as a result, they opposed Jesus as Messiah. So that's the tale of the first city. A tale of foolishness, incredulity, darkness and seeming despair. If you're using my leaflet and filling in the blanks, hopefully you've filled in all the blanks on the Thessalonian side of the table. Now we move on to Berea. Let's compare these events of the second tale, so to speak. The tale set in the smaller city of Berea. Uh, Not yet for that slide. Paul and Silas, smuggled out of Thessalonia, travelled about a distance, according to what Google Maps tells me these days, is a 16-hour walk. So probably two days for me, maybe they were fitter and could do it in a day. On arriving there, however, they went straight to the synagogue, exactly what they did in Thessalonia. It's worth noting that this is the exact same approach that Paul used previously. The same tactic that led to a riot and being labelled persona non grata. Luke wants us to see that the same message, the same gospel, preached in the same way, occurred in a different city. But the response is what is different. After the events of Thessalonia, and indeed if we look further back to Philippi last week, it feels like a breath of fresh air as Luke describes the events in Berea. This seems like the best of times compared to the worst of times previously. It's almost startling when you read it that the Jews of Berea were receptive to Paul's message. Here we're told that a large number of Jews prominent Greek women and men believe. But not just believing blindly, but by testing what Paul taught and comparing it against Scripture, they were persuaded. This is described by Luke as noble character. Their attitude was not closed, 
They were not reacting emotionally. This is a marked contrast from the base instinct of negative jealousy that we have in the previous city. Referring back to the Oxford Dictionary, noble is defined as having or showing fine personal qualities or high moral principles. That's a word I'd like to be described by. And Luke uses it of the Berean Jews because of their attitude to scriptures. By undertaking their own critical assessment, that is, examining the scriptures, they, they use scripture as the truth by which to judge Paul's teaching. And as a result, they were persuaded. They held scripture in high regard. Higher, in fact, than they held Paul's teaching and higher than their previous thoughts or expectations of who the Messiah might be. Now, before we think that that's just an issue for Jews who don't yet know the Messiah, many centuries later than this story, a similar examination of teaching occurred within the church. We call that the Reformation. And out of the Reformation, a term was coined in Latin that is, Scripture is Norma Normans. I've been joking with the family this week that it's not an old couple called Norma and Norman. It's Norma Normans. Translated, it means that Scripture, the whole Bible, is the standard of standards. That all teaching can be compared to Scripture because scripture is the truth that defines all truth. If a teaching does not align with scripture, then it cannot be true. The Bereans here are practicing an example of the reformed idea of scripture being Norma Normans. Therefore, to these noble Jews, a suffering Messiah was not considered a stumbling block as it was to the Thessalonians, because it became apparent through their investigations that this is exactly what Scripture had been saying all along. Because the Bereans could see for themselves that what Paul was teaching was consistent with the Old Testament Scriptures, they were willing to believe this new teaching which fulfills the very same Scriptures. In Berea, Paul experiences the epoch of belief and the spring of hope. The Bereans adjusted their understanding of the Messiah to align with Scripture. The Berean Jews effectively chose to live under the authority of Scripture rather than under the authority of emotions. This is what Luke calls noble behaviour. I was humbled myself this uh, past few weeks as I was preparing this message, thinking through how much do I allow Scripture to transform my life in a similar way to the Bereans? And I think in our busy culture, I wouldn't be alone in feeling a level of guilt that I could and should be doing more. I want to encourage you all here today that it's great that you're here 
because every Sunday we get the opportunity to be retaught from the Scriptures by our faithful uh, pastor and other preachers so that we can have that opportunity together to examine and live under Scripture. I want to encourage you to all keep coming and doing that. But how else can we do that during the week? Thinking through it, obviously, the, having our own personal devotional times and reading through a plan, perhaps, so that you can read through the Bible in a year. That's very um, systematic. Joining a growth group is another excellent example. In our leaflet today, uh, there is the reminder of that on the back, and there is a tear-off slip that you can use if you want to put yourself forward and say, yes, I would like to join a growth group. It's an excellent way during the week to come together again and examine the Scriptures and learn to live under their authority. Perhaps a group is a bit intimidating and uh, reading the Bible one-on-one with somebody else would be helpful. It's another opportunity to dig deep into the Bible with somebody else, perhaps who um, has walked the path of discipleship longer and they can encourage you. Either way, I'd certainly like us, as a church, to be called noble like the Bereans, wouldn't you? I'd hope that uh, if there's any questions that you'd have, that you can come to um, Cam or any of the staff team on how you can uh, be disciplined, make decisions to be of more noble character like the Bereans. So let's have a chat after the service. Before we move on, uh, now's the time for that slide to come up. If uh, you haven't filled out all of your, your blanks, Luke provides us, not in this format, obviously, this is a little bit um, uh, formal, but Luke provides us with a really striking contrast between the two cities, and I found it help it, helpful to view it this way. It's the same message being preached in each place, but it's the attitude of the hearers differentiates them, that results in the different responses between the people. In Thessalonica, only some people believe, but in Berea, we have many. Thessalonica, we have jealous Jews, but in Berea, they were noble. In Thessalonica, they started a riot as their response, but in Berea, they examined the scriptures. What a different outcome physically misinterpreted this, this message in Thessalonica when they applied the argument that Jesus was the king in opposition to Caesar, whereas in Berea they didn't misinterpret it, they confirmed the truth. And then as a result, one city opposed Jesus as the Messiah, the other accepted him. We don't know how long Paul stayed in Berea, long enough that people could listen to his message and investigate it themselves, Uh, long enough that a sustainable group of believers continued to exist. Even later, when Paul revisited Berea, there was a church there. And one of the uh, members of the church later joined Paul in his ongoing ministry. But it was also long enough that the jealous Jews of Thessalonica heard about Paul's preaching in Berea and came down to break up the party. These people from the free city of Rome felt strongly enough 
about their incorrect knowledge of scriptures that they needed to impose their worldview on the free-thinking people of Berea. Presumably, they used similar arguments. They agitated the crowds and stirred them up. And once again, Paul was forced to move on, this time to Athens. It may seem that the season of darkness and the winter of despair wins the day again. It may appear that interest groups and political lobbying are successful in stopping the spread of the gospel. But this is not and is never the case. So this is the tale of two cities. Luke made deliberate choices to record these events to illustrate to us the nature of the ministry that Paul experienced and the contrasting responses to the gospel. It's worth reflecting as we get towards the end that in each city, whether they were noble or foolish, there was opposition. And this is still true today. We as a church... We mustn't be surprised by this when we experience opposition ourselves. It would be naive to expect all people to respond like the Bereans, that people would critically examine the available information and be rational about their choices. We can and should present the gospel faithfully as Paul did. But not everyone will believe. On the other side of the coin, though, even in Thessalonica, where there was the greatest opposition, where a riot was started and Paul and Silas were nearly arrested for treason, people still did believe. From this small beginning, a church did grow. Indeed, we are blessed with two letters written by Paul to that same church many years later. Whilst opposition should not surprise us, the Spirit works more powerfully in people's hearts than any riot can. We can take great comfort and confidence in that in our ongoing ministry in Adelaide and Tonsley today. It's also important to remember that Paul preached the same gospel each time. He didn't change the message after a painful rejection in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. He didn't even try to jazz it up a bit, make it more appealing or exciting with perhaps a miracle or an audio or visual extravaganza or some celebrity endorsement. The gospel and scripture, even the Old Testament, is enough. The Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting for us. The unpredictable aspect in all this is people's attitude. But the predictable is that God's salvation is going out in concentric circles, out into the whole world. And this is where we must leave the words of Dickens. For his last lines in the poem are, it was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. But because of Jesus, we only live in the spring of hope. For us, there is no winter of despair. 
we serve the risen Christ who by his faithful suffering, death and resurrection, his lordship over our lives gives us and offers us forgiveness and everlasting life to all of us who put our trust in him. There can never be despair. This tale of two cities shows us the reality of God's work in his world. His work is always accomplished. So as we go from here today, I'd just like to leave you with those last two questions in the leaflet. If there's anything that you take away and you remember during the week, it's those two questions. Whether you answer them now or you think about it in them in your own personal time. The first one is, what does Scripture being Norman Normans look like for you? How can you make changes? How can you esteem Scripture high enough that it fulfills that role in your life, the truth that defines all truth? And as a practical question, the next one is, what more noble decision can you make this year to have a Berean attitude in your life? My prayer is that as a church, we will be described as having that noble character, an attitude that lets God lead us through his scripture. Let me pray. Dear Father, again, I thank you for your word. Lord, I want it to be the beginning and the end of everything that we do, that it influences and shapes us and enables us to see you clearly. I ask that by your spirit we would have open eyes to it and that we would have a nature and an attitude that is, ad, that is obedient and sensitive to your leading through it. Amen.